The text for this morning is found in Psalm 42 and 43. Please turn with me there. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? as with a deadly wound in my bones. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend me, defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your holy and inspired word. We thank you now that we can take this time to sit and consider what you have for us. To that end, I ask and pray that you would speak through me, that you would use me, Lord, for I know this is something we all need to hear. And so, Father, I just pray that as your word is preached this morning, that you would have your way with us, that you would use this for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever get to the point where you wonder, where is God in all of this? Perhaps something is just not going the way you had always hoped and dreamed that it would. Whether it's work, perhaps your marriage, perhaps it's family, or your health, 
the health of a loved one, whatever the case might be. But perhaps it's just the constant looking around at the world around us right now. Some discouraging stuff. The fact is we live in a fallen world, and we're fallen people, and some days, some weeks, some seasons, we may feel the effects of the fall more than at other times. There are times when we can just flat out get discouraged, downcast, even depressed. Sometimes our situation can be so dire, or perhaps from our vantage point, it just goes on so long that we're inclined to ask, where are you, God? Why aren't you getting me out of this? Why am I suffering? Oftentimes in such seasons, we can reach the point where God seems distant. Now, sometimes that's our fault because we're not putting ourselves around the means of grace. We're not taking part in corporate worship. We're not regularly reading our, our Bibles. But, but, but at times, even when we're faithful to attend to the means of grace, faithful in our church attendance, faithful in our spiritual disciplines, we can still hit a point where we're fighting to read the Bible and pray. And times we read the Bible and it feels a little different than reading a novel, or we pray and it feels like our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Ever experience anything like that? If not, praise God. You almost certainly will at some point in the future. But if you haven't yet, that's wonderful. I hope and pray that you are trusting in Christ, that you're clinging to Christ through the good seasons. If, on the other hand, you're like most of us, and you have walked through something along these lines, some sort of painful season in your life, some season where you feel distant from God, I want you to know you're not alone. The fact is, many of the great heroes of the faith have struggled mightily with what we might call spiritual discouragement, or what's even called spiritual depression. Many of you know the name John Piper. You probably know him as the guy who talks about joy all the time. And yet, if you were to talk to John, he would tell you that he's a man who has suffered greatly with discouragement and what he would call spiritual depression. Jonathan Edwards, one of the brightest evangelical minds the world has ever known, a faithful pastor, gifted writer, blessed with a wife and 11 children. He had it all. And yet George Marsden in his biography says, quote, we know of Edwards that he also suffered from depression throughout his life. Even as he kept the disciplines of the faith, he was frequently afflicted by times of spiritual deadness and very human imperfections. It would be a mistake to think of Edwards as someone for whom saintliness came easy, end quote. Did you know that about Jonathan Edwards? First biography I ever read on Jonathan Edwards was Ian Murray's biography, and I love Ian Murray, but Ian Murray loved Jonathan Edwards, and he said nothing negative even remotely about Edwards, and so I read that, and then I read Religious Affections, and I thought Edwards was a super Christian, right? Flat out just had it together, but it's not the case. How about Charles Spurgeon? the so-called prince of preachers, one of my heroes. Did you know Spurgeon was a man who lived most of his adult life with a very sick wife? She was so 
frail. She was rarely able to go with him to corporate worship, rarely able to hear her husband preach in person. Not to mention Spurgeon's own struggles with gout, rheumatism, and Bright's disease. In a sermon on the passage we're going to be covering this morning, Spurgeon said, quote, Oh, you simple soul, the most advanced saints suffer in just the same way. Talking about the same way the psalmist talks about. He says, men who have been 40, 50, 60 years followers of Christ complain that sometimes it is a question with them whether they have ever known Christ at all. There are seasons with them when they would, if they could, creep into a mouse hole and hide their heads rather than be seen among God's people because they fear they're hypocrites and that the root of the matter is not in them. Why, I tell you, young Christians, that the most experienced believers, the men who have great doctrinal knowledge and much experimental wisdom, the men who have lived very near to God and have had the most rapt and intimate fellowship with their Lord and Savior, are the very men who have their ebbs, their winters, and their times when it is a moot point with them whether they really love the Lord or not. End quote. In his book, Lectures to My Students, Spurgeon says this, This depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has become to me a prophet in rough clothing, a John the Baptist heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer benison, end quote. How about Martin Luther? The great warrior of the faith, right? You probably know of Martin Luther as the man who single-handedly was willing to stand up to the Roman Catholic Church to defiantly nail his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. But did you know he too was a man who struggled greatly with much spiritual depression? John Piper in his book, Legacy of Sovereign Joy, writes this, quote, Suffering was woven into life for Luther. Keep in mind that from 1521 on, Luther lived under the ban of the empire. Emperor Charles V said, I have decided to mobilize everything against Luther. My kingdoms and dominions, my friends, my body, my blood, and my soul. He, Luther, could have been legally killed, except where he was protected by his prince, Frederick of Saxony. He endured relentless slander of the most cruel kind. He once observed, if the devil can do nothing against the teachings, he attacks the person, lying, slandering, cursing, and ranting at him. Just as the papist Beelzebub did to me when he could not subdue my gospel, he wrote that I was possessed by the devil, was a changeling, my beloved mother a whore, and a bath attendant. Physically, Luther suffered from excruciating kidney stones and headaches with constant buzzing in his ears, ear infections, and incapacitating constipation and hemorrhoids. That sounds encouraging, doesn't it? Luther was once quoted as saying, I nearly gave up the ghost, and now bathed in blood can find no peace. What took four days to heal immediately tears open again. It's not surprising then that emotionally and spiritually he would undergo the most horrible struggles. For example, in a letter to Melanchthon on August 2nd, 1527, he writes, 
For more than a week, I have been thrown back and forth in death and hell. My whole body feels beaten. My limbs are still trembling. I almost lost Christ completely, driven about on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. But because of the intercession of the faithful, God began to take mercy on me and tore my soul from the depths of hell, end quote. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, Deserted by God, tells a funny story that gets at Luther's struggle with depression. Ferguson writes, on one occasion when he was greatly discouraged, Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, was forcefully reminded of this by his wife Catherine. Seeing him unresponsive to any word of encouragement, one morning she appeared dressed in black morning clothes. No word of explanation was forthcoming. And so Luther, who had heard nothing of a bereavement, asked her, Catherine, why are you dressed in mourning black? Someone has died, she replied. Died, said Luther? I have not heard of anyone dying. Whoever could have died, he said. It would seem, his wife replied, that God has died. Ferguson says Luther took the point. Now, I take time to share some of these examples, and we could share so many more, because I think the evil one would want to isolate us in our difficult seasons and lead us to believe that no true believer, no one who has the Spirit of God dwelling in them, no one who has ever experienced the joy of all their sins being forgiven could ever again struggle with discouragement or even depression. But the reality is we can and we do. And far more important and encouraging than recognizing some of the older saints who have gone before us struggling is the fact that we see this taught in Holy Scripture. In fact, in Psalm 42 through 43, we not only see the inspired writer struggling under a very intense trial with much doubt, we also see him quite beautifully show us how we can exercise faith even as God's sovereign breakers are rushing over us. So here's what we're going to do as we continue our series, 10 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. I'm going to walk us through a very quick overview of the psalm itself. Not an exposition, but a quick overview so we get a, a, a feel of the writer's flow of thought. Then we're going to consider how this psalm is fulfilled in Christ and the ever-important reality that one of the reasons Jesus died was to give us hope in the midst of trials, hope in our greatest despair. Psalm 42 to 43 were likely originally written together. Whether the psalmist wrote Psalm 42 one day and 43 the next, or he sat down and he just wrote the whole thing in one psalm, we don't know, and it really doesn't matter. The fact is, these two psalms, when you study them, are really one beautiful unit, as seen in the fact that in the original there's no title for Psalm 43, and the flow of thought is seamless between these two, with the refrain from Psalm 42, verse 5, Psalm 42, verse 11, and Psalm 43, 5, capping off each of the three major sections. So if you're not there, turn with me to Psalm 42, and I'm going to begin by reading through the first section, verses 1 through 5. As the deer pants for flowing streams, 
so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. We know almost nothing about when the psalm was written, but it is clear from the context that He's either in exile or for some other reason there's this forced distance from Jerusalem. And so we see as as he's away from the temple, he he pants and thirsts for God. You see the pain of the drought, right? His tears, he says, are what sustained him. His tears have been his food day and night. Notice that he remembers past experience with God. He remembers temple worship. We'll come back to that. And he exhorts his own soul, soul, hope in God. That's the first section, longing for God in spiritual drought. Now you move on to the next section, fighting discouragement in spiritual floodwaters. Look at verses 6 through 11. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Here he admits he's depressed. My soul is downcast, he says. Again, in that struggle, in that turmoil, he remembers past experience with God. He, he, he understands God is sovereign in the trial. He says, it's your waterfalls, your breakers. That's what's coming over me. He reflects on God's steadfast love. He sings of God's love, he says. He reflects upon the oppression of the enemy. That's painful. And then he again exhorts his own soul, hope in God leads to the last section where the psalmist cries out for vindication in the spiritual attack. And he confesses his hope and his praise says that it will be forthcoming. Look at Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then 
I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. He prays for vindication. Sit under persecution long enough, and you'll indeed pray for vindication. Take care of them, Lord. Your word says vengeance is yours. I'm not going to take revenge, but I'm asking you, deal with them. He looks to the future when he will rejoice again. And he ends exhorting his own soul one more time, hope in God. And so you end this psalm without relief. I want you to be clear on that. You end this psalm and this trial is not over. But there is indeed hope and a personal exhortation to keep on hoping. You, you see, this is a psalm of lament. That's how we categorize this psalm. The writer, whoever it is, was, as we've seen, going through a remarkably hard time. And yet he trusted in God all the way through. And thus this psalm is so beautifully fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a man of sorrows and yet trusted God the Father throughout his earthly life. Now listen, we know theologically Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And as a man, he experienced profound sorrows. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus' life was not easy. From the very beginning of his earthly ministry, people were against him. In John 1, you read, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Jesus himself says in John 15, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. It hated me first. We often think of Jesus as God, and that's right. Unless when we think of Jesus as God, we actually downplay his humanity, right? It's hard for us to get our heads around, but Jesus was fully God and fully man. And as a man, Jesus' life was a hard one. He walked through everything we walk through and so much more. Small wonder the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers of supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In the Garden of Gethsemane, many believe that Psalm 42 and 43 were on his mind when he said, my soul is very sorrowful, my soul is cast down even unto death. Like the psalmist, he asks the Father to remove the pain, to take away the trial. If it be your will, take, take this cup from me. Let this cup pass. But he trusted in God, not my will, but your will be done. Like the psalmist, he asked why. Why he was forsaken. Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in beautiful fulfillment of the psalm, he trusts in the Heavenly Father's good plan and says, 
into your hands. I commit my spirit, and it is finished. See, the writer of Hebrews is very helpful to our understanding of Jesus and the cross when he says in chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus hated the cross, the whole process, the, the, the shame of being hung on a Roman cross, stripped and hung on a Roman cross, the pain of the cross, the pain of bearing all of the sin of all who would trust in him, but he kept his eyes on the Father. He kept his eyes on the resurrection, knowing he would once again rejoice. And let's be clear. He went through all of that to come rescue sinners like us. Now, you might be here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for your right standing with God. And I would just pause here and plead with you. If you don't know Jesus, Look to Him. Lay hold of Christ. Confess your sin. Repent and follow Jesus and find the hope that we're talking about. For believers, now on this side of the cross, we read this psalm a little differently than Old Testament saints would have done because we understand its fulfillment. We now understand that the Holy Spirit was saying through the inspired writer about that salvation we're to hope in. We have much greater clarity on Psalm 42, verses 5, 11, and 43, 5, when we exhort our souls hope in God. We know Jesus walked through everything we could ever walk through and so much more. He went through all of that. So we, with great confidence, can say, my salvation and my God. And so I want to think through six points of application that flow from a Christocentric understanding of this psalm. Point number one. Point number one. And this psalm, coupled with the life of Jesus, the leader and captain of our faith, teaches us that we, as Christ followers, listen close, should expect trials, hardship, difficult times, times where we may indeed feel like asking, where are you, God? Listen, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news today, but Jesus was a man of sorrows, and he said, if anyone would come after me, you want to be my follower? Let him deny himself. That sounds hard, right? We, we, we say, we preach, gratify self. He says, you want to be my follower? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, so pick up your instrument of death, something that reminds you of death every single day, and, and follow me. Now, I ask you, why should we think that our lives should be easy when the leader and captain of our faith who experienced trials his entire life says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me? Of course, we know trials come from multiple places. In this psalm, it does not seem as though it's coming from the writer's own sin. In fact, it would seem that he's under the yoke of an adversary, more, more likely many adversaries, and they're taunting him. That, that's something that can really weigh us down, isn't it? But there's all kinds of reasons believers can experience trials, from active persecution to, quite frankly, the day-in and day-out pain of living in a fallen world. 
And understanding this, church, is important because our expectations are often our greatest enemy. If we came to Christ believing the garbage of the health and wealth gospel, the the prosperity gospel, or even if we've rightly rejected that theologically, but fail to realize how much baggage of that teaching still affects our thinking, and thus we basically expect, because I'm a follower of Jesus, everything's going to go well for me. Well, if that's the case, we're going to come up for air when for our own good, God leads us into a difficult season, which leads to the second point. When, not if, when we experience trials of all kind, Christians must seek Christ for relief. And this is important because this is an area it's so easy for every single one of us to fail. See, see, we would miss the whole point of this psalm if we only get 90% of verses 1 through 2. Here's what I mean. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul, Lord, pants for a better job. If I could just get that. So my soul pants for a better outcome. Whatever I'm hoping for. So my soul pants for physical healing or, or whatever else, right? In real life, we can get very confused on this point. Lord, this trial would come to an end. The darkness would lift if you would just bring this painful season to an end. No, 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 no. That might end up being some of the implications of what the Lord is doing. But let us not miss that the psalmist says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. I need you, Lord Jesus. My soul thirsts, I mean really thirsts, not for a stiff drink at the end of the day or hours of mindless entertainment or a better job or particular conflict to cease, but ultimately and finally My soul thirsts for you. In verse 8, he reflects on God's covenant love. In verse 9, he reflects on God, his rock. In verse 4 of chapter 43, God is my God. And as God walks us through trials of all kinds, one of the things he's doing, and we're going to sing of this when we're done. We're going to sing a really hard song to sing, but I pray we'll sing it with faith. One of the things that God is doing is He is prying our fingers off of the death grip that we have on the world, trying to get us to take our gaze off of the world and place them on Him, our salvation, and our God. See, when we're walking through painful seasons, our God wants us to come to Him for relief. He wants us to come to Him for comfort, not a half gallon of Bluebell an extra glass of wine, hours of mind-numbing media, or whatever else we're prone to use to anesthetize our souls to the pain we're in. No, see, we are to come to Him. We are to confess honestly, Lord, theologically, I know You haven't left me, but it sure feels like it right now. Lord, I am drier than dirt in my faith. I am panting. I am thirsty. And I know that ultimately You are the only one who can truly quench this parched tongue. Number three, several times throughout the psalm, the inspired writer speaks of remembering. 
as he's separated from God, he remembers, he looks back on past experiences of temple worship. Now, on this side of the cross, our experience is different, but I do think this basic principle remains. It's different because in a very real sense, he was away from the presence of God, right? Yes, we know God is omnipresent, but he was away from the temple, which at that point in salvation history, that was the unique place God met with his people. Our situation's different. Unless we're under church discipline and we're, we're barred from fellowship for the purpose of being broken and then being brought back, then we don't experience this kind of separation because we, the church, are the new temple. We are the unique place God meets with his people. And, and thus the point's not quite an apples-to-apples apples sort of thing. But, but, but I do think in difficult times, we often feel distant from God, and so this principle can be helpful. We can remember past experiences with God. Remember those times when Christ seemed particularly near to us. We can remember our salvation. Right? I've had times where I've been discouraged, and somebody asked me to share my testimony, and I was reminded in looking back at what God had done. We can remember how God has worked in our life. For some of us, we've been Christians long enough that we can look back now on past trials. And, and, and we might remember, oh, I, boy, I hated that time in the midst of it. It was so painful. And yet I saw God's good hand looking back on it and how he worked in my life. And I'm going to trust by faith that he's doing the same thing now. That leads to the fourth point, and that is Christians must recognize God's sovereign hand behind the trial. Again, look back at verse 7. He says, deep calls to deep at the roar of… whose waterfalls? At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers, your waves… These adversaries are the breakers and the waves, and yet the psalmist is clear theologically, they're yours, Lord. They've they've gone over me. He's clear God is sovereign over all things. And thus the waterfalls are God's waterfalls. The breakers, the waves are all God's. And this is so important. Sometimes we can get all twisted up in our theology in difficult seasons, and we speak as though there's some sort of cosmic dualism going on. And God's either caught off guard about what's happening in our lives, or worse yet, that he's, He can't do anything about it. But both of those are wrong. We, we must recognize God is sovereign over all things. Even the painful breakers rolling over my head are from God. And while I might not understand it in the moment, God is sovereign, and He has a good eternal plan for what I'm walking through. And this is where a text like Romans 8 is so helpful, right? We read, We know God causes all things, not just things we would label good. God causes all things, all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. See, we need texts like this to minister to us in difficult times. We want to remind ourselves, speak truth to ourselves, that self, while I might not understand it now, God causes all all things to work together for good for those who love Him, those called according to His purpose. And this leads to the next point, which is this. Christians must learn 
to speak truth to ourselves instead of simply listening to ourselves. And we see this point very clearly in the psalm. In fact, you could argue this is the most important point of the psalm as it's the thing that ties the whole thing together and it repeats itself three times. Each of the three sections of the psalm are concluded with the refrain, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, soul, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now, why is this so important? Well, I think Paul Tripp says it well when he says, quote, I find myself saying it all the time. When people hear it, they laugh. But actually, I'm being serious when I say it. Here it is. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. You are in an unending conversation with yourself. You are talking to yourself all the time, interpreting, organizing, analyzing what's going on inside of you and around you. And then he asks this, what do you regularly tell yourself about yourself, about God, about your circumstances? Do your words to yourself encourage faith, hope, and courage? Or do they stimulate doubt, discouragement, and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near? Or do you reason with yourself that given your circumstances, He must be distant? No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. How well, he asks, are you counseling yourself? End quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, which is based on this very psalm, is even more pointed and I think remarkably helpful. Here's what the good doctor had to say on this refrain with this psalm. He says, quote, The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. He says, am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in the matter, he says. Have you realized most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Someone's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this is the man's treatment in Psalm 42. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. And he stands up and says, Self, you listen for a moment. I will speak to you. End quote. Oh, it's so good. So helpful. And you know this is true, don't you? Think about the ongoing conversation in your mind. Man, yesterday was a horrible day. Sure was. And you know what? What? I bet today's going to be even worse. Why do you think that? Well, I don't know. I have no empirical data to point me in that direction. I just think it is. It smells like a stinky day. And, and I'm just, we may as well go on and just head out into the big stink fest that is there for me today. Right? But here, Holy Scripture is showing us a better way, a more Christ-honoring way, a way that leads to hope and joy. Man, yesterday was a horrible day. It sure was. And you know what? What? 
I bet today's going to be even worse. But then you cut yourself off. Hey, self, shut up. Kids, it's okay to tell yourself to shut up. Don't tell your siblings, but you can tell yourself when you're talking like that, shut up. God's Word tells me His mercies are new every day. So I got that going for me. God's Word tells me my sins have been forgiven. Amen. And and I'm a new creation in Christ. God's Word teaches me that God is at work in my life, even through days like yesterday, working His good plans for my good and His glory. Now, for the engineers among us, you've got to be careful here. Because what I'm telling you could be setting you up for even more discouragement. If you walk away from this sermon thinking, ha ha, I found it, I found the magic pill, right? I I need to follow these three steps, turn the crank, and out it's going to pop, you know, all sorts of happiness and joy and milk and cookies and... No, it doesn't doesn't work like that. If your soul is half as sinful and stubborn as mine, it's going to take far more than one conversation. In fact, it's going to take many. In fact, it's going to be a lifetime of preaching the gospel to yourself, but it is effective, and the Lord uses it tremendously. Rather than piling on garbage after garbage, I'm horrible, today is horrible, everything's horrible, we speak truth to ourselves, and I'm not talking about pop psychology mumbo-jumbo. No, the, 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 the talking to ourselves that we see here is exhorting ourselves with the truth of Scripture. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Quit focusing on the negative. Hope in Christ who died to give me hope. Hope in Him, my salvation and my God. Singing. Did you notice the psalmist sings? It's a great example of this. Do you you know this is one of the reasons we sing corporately? To speak truth to ourselves and to one another? Uh, I would encourage you to download our Spotify list, if you have Spotify, of, of songs we sing. Because when we sing, we're speaking truth to our own soul. Think about the song we sang right before the sermon. When I fear, my faith will fail. You ever fear that? I do. Christ will hold me fast. I need to be reminded of that. When the tempter would prevail, ever feel like that's happening? Christ will hold me fast. Do you you see? Brothers and sisters, rather than listening to ourselves all day every day, through the lenses of the cross, we want to start talking to ourselves. We want to speak gospel truths to ourselves and watch the Lord work in our lives leads to the final point and that is as we speak truth to ourselves we must lean in on the hope that Christ's death gives us that is the hope the sure and certain hope that no matter what we go through no matter what we will indeed rejoice again in Christ. And we see this point all over the psalm. Pointed out that when we walked through the psalm earlier, that you end the psalm and there's no sense that the trial's over. And if this writer of the psalm is in exile, like I think he is, so you might think of our series through Daniel, Daniel's exile, then, then this particular trial probably never ended for the psalmist. And yet at the end of each refrain, he says, 
hope in God. Hope in God. I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. In, in, in Psalm 43, verse 4, he looks forward to that time. He says, I will go to the altar of God, my God, my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. We as Christians have a greater understanding, don't we, of this, even than the psalmist did, because we live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. See, we should expect God to lift the cloud of spiritual discouragement or spiritual depression. But listen closely. In saying that, I am not saying that we necessarily expect God to release upon the trial that He's called us to walk through. Sometimes, in His grace, for reasons we may never quite understand on this side of eternity, our God blesses us with a trial that lasts the rest of our life. Just talk to somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata or someone diagnosed with a terminal illness. But see, even here, when we're clear on the resurrection and we're clear that our lives are a teeny tiny little blip on the radar of eternity, we can rejoice that Jesus is indeed our salvation. We can rejoice that no matter what we're going through, we don't get what we deserve, amen? That we actually get to spend all eternity rejoicing and praising Christ, our salvation and our God. So brothers and sisters, one of the many reasons Jesus died was in fact to give us hope in the midst of the trial. Let's pray. Father, as we now sing in response, Lord, I pray that you would minister even more to our souls as we consider the words of these songs. Lord, we remember that you employ trials to set us free from self and pride. You bring us into trials at times to break the schemes of earthly joy that we'll find our all in you. And so, Father, we pray as hard as it is to pray. Have your way with us. Draw us ever closer to Jesus. Empower us to hold on in the hard times. Lord, we thank you for your word that while we think we're holding on, we know the reality is, as we sang earlier, Christ holds us fast. And so, Lord, we pray, hold us fast. Help us to love you. Help us to live for you. Help us to glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.